would you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21? Some of you, your heart just sank. You said, come on, we've got three more chapters in Genesis. Can't we just <laughs> finish it up? Not this week. Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to read in verse 1 through verse 11, because this is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus. This is also known as Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others can't cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, thank you that Jesus is not just a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, thank you that he did come to earth, that he did come from a physical location as a physical human being. Father, thank you that he is not just man, but also God, that he is king. Father, that he is Savior and Lord. Lord, there's so much about our Savior. God, we pray that you would teach us and that we would grow in that knowledge and the love of him because of who he is, what he has done, what he's worthy of. We praise you, we give you this time, Father, and we know that we are dependent on you to teach us, to change us, to grow us. Father, that you would be glorified. We ask that in the name of this King Jesus, amen. What a scene that must have been. I, I, I just, I wish I could see that, I, to, to have been there. Scholars estimate that the population at the time of Jesus in Jerusalem normally was between 60 and 70,000 people, but this was Passover, and the ancient historian Josephus estimates that the population would swell to around 2 million people during the time of Passover. And so there are literally millions of people in the town at this time, the city at this time, and so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, crowds of people line the streets from the entrance to the temple, and they begin shouting those blessings on him and praise and asking him to save them. There was excitement there. There was activity. There was shouting. There was anticipation about what was going to happen, what's about to happen. We need to notice some things about the crowds of people who followed along, who went before and who followed along in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Let's look at what they did, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. You know, that's something that people did for royalty. Royalty, you put your clothes down on the road. Israel hadn't had their own king in Jerusalem since 586 B.C., 
when, when they were exiled from the land by Babylon. And after returning 70 years later, there was still no king. And up to this point, there still has not been a king ruling in Jerusalem. So they're saying, here's the king. Let's spread our cloaks on the road. They anticipate Jesus coming as king. Look at the prophecy from Zechariah in verse 5 here. Your king is coming to you. Here's your king. They laid their cloaks on the road. We're here to serve you as you come as our king. They lay branches on the ground on his path. And John is the one who tells us they were palm branches. That's where we get this Palm Sunday, this this name Palm Sunday. They lay those branches because the palm trees were symbols of victory. The the branches that they laid on the ground was victory, it was triumph. This conquering king, this is good. Here is the king, many were thinking, the king of Psalm 2, who's the one who God sits in heaven and he laughs at the feeble rebellion of mankind, and God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, He's t- talking about Jesus. Ask of me, God says to his king, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So all people, you better start serving this king. Many people in their minds are thinking, here he is, the king, the one that we're going to serve. You better start serving him now. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are those of us who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, king. That's on their mind. The the king that they're waiting for, the Psalm 110 king, who will rule in the midst of his enemies and shatter kings on the day of his wrath, executing judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He's the son of David whose throne is everlasting. So we see what they did. They were ready for the king, Jesus. They spread their cloaks on the ground and the palm branches on the ground. That's what they did. Look at what they said. Hosanna. Please save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the cry of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It's the cry of expectation, of anticipation. It's it's excitement. It's happiness. It's joy. Mark records their cry as blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's the king who's bringing the kingdom. In Luke, the cry is blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In John, the cry is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's what they did and that's what they said. The celebration of the king. They showed And they said so much anticipation in Jesus as the one who was the king that they wanted. The king that they were looking for. The one who would bless them and and give them everything that they wanted and who would shatter and dash apart everybody else. Now before we move on, we do need to recognize that it was right for Jesus to be celebrated this way. He is the king. He is the eternal king. Jesus planned for this. He accepted their praise. Before this, he'd been telling people, don't tell people who I am. He strictly warned person after person, don't tell them who I am. Don't tell them who I am. Now, everybody is rejoicing and everybody is, is, is excited and, and noticing and praising him and this is supposed to happen. It's, it's right for this to happen. It was right for the people to celebrate him as king. The Pharisees told Jesus, make these people stop. What are they doing? 
Rebuke your disciples, your followers, all these people following you. Tell them to knock it off. And his response was, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of this was right. It was good. It was proper and fitting for the king, the king of kings. So we wonder, do we get excited for the king of kings? Do we get this excited for the king of kings? We should. (laughs) He is our king. We're not used to that kind of language with the system of government that we prefer here in America. But he is the ultimate sovereign ruler king. Look how excited they got, how, how much they praised him, all of the activity that they put forth in serving him, and it was for an earthly kingdom. We've been made citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom. We, we should get at least this joyful, right, about this king and his coming kingdom. By the way, we need to know that those prophecies of Jesus about him dashing kings in pieces and crushing things and, and people that are his enemies, those are still relevant and valid prophecies. Jesus will still do that. He will enter Jerusalem as that victorious king, but he is already our victorious king and Lord over our sin, over our shortcomings, over our weaknesses, over all that we are that falls so far short of God's glory and his holiness. He's already our victorious King and Lord. So we should and can celebrate both of those aspects of Jesus in the the fullness of all that he is. But in all their excitement and all of their doing and all of their shouting and all of the good that was here, we see that it didn't last. Look at the confusion in verse 10. Who's this? They're preparing for him as king. They're shouting for him as king. But they answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And what people would say is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) He was from Nazareth. He would be called a Nazarene, a a despised person, a, a a less than good person. As the week went on and Jesus didn't set up that kingdom that they imagined, that kingdom that they yearned for and they wanted, everything that they were looking for, their excitement subsided, their anticipation waned, their joy died off. Verse 15, the chief priests and scribes are indignant at him. Verse 23, it continues in Matthew 21, the chief priests, the elders of the people, challenges authority. Verse 46, the chief priests and Pharisees sought to arrest him, but they feared the crowds. Why? Because he's their king? No, because they held him to be a prophet. No longer excited over that king. Now he's a prophet. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus warns the people about the scribes and Pharisees, yet they follow them instead of Jesus. A great crowd came with Judas and the priests and the elders of the people to arrest Jesus in chapter 26 of Matthew. In verse verse 55, Jesus spoke to the crowds and said, you haven't arrested me day after day after day. I've been teaching. I've been here this whole time. You've never arrested me. And he says, but this is all fulfilling scripture. And so at his arrest, we see that at his arrest, his disciples fled. They left him and they took off. In chapter 27, the chief priests and the elders persuade the crowd, the same, many of the same people, to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And John chapter 19 records Pilate asking them, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. John had said in chapter 1 of his gospel, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. 
the people who had followed Jesus, the, the people that even the Pharisees called the crowd his disciples, the people who have followed Jesus, they were so excited, they were so joyful, they did so much, they said so much, they were so excited and emotional, they had now rejected Jesus. They were not true followers. But there were some who were true followers, his disciples. Jesus had even called them friends. After he rose from the grave, he would send them out as apostles and faithful disciples. But, but wait, we, didn't we just say that when he was arrested that they all fled? They, they, they left him and they just took off. We know that shortly after that, Peter would deny Jesus publicly three times. They may not have been part of the crowds calling for him to be crucified, but how many of them stood at his trial with him? Peter and John apparently followed at a distance through some of the trials, but that's as far as it got. So the question is, what's the difference between the true followers of Jesus and the crowd followers of Jesus? Those who followed him for a time, those who followed him and who left and then came back. Those who followed and came back and then left again, those who followed and left and didn't return. It's pretty hard to tell. Which ones of these, how can you tell a true follower of Jesus? Nobody seems to be at this point following him, so what does it mean? It's one of those things we say in church a lot. You know, I'm a disciple. Let's make disciples. Let's follow Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. The things that we say, but what does it mean? What is a Christ follower, a disciple, and who gets to decide? probably the one we're following, Christ, right? He's the one that gets to decide, not you and me, not, not scholars and experts, uh, not any kind of tests that we can come up with. You, you remember in Mark 9 when uh, John saw the, the people casting out demons in Jesus' name, he says, we tried to stop him because he's not following with us. And Jesus said, don't try to stop him. <laughs> it's not about us or you, it's about me, Jesus was saying. He was teaching them. Disciples don't get to decide who disciples are. Jesus does. So does Jesus tell us what it looks like to follow him? Yes. Yes, he does. You know, it, could be, it would be really helpful to know whether I'm following him the way that he said I'm supposed to follow him. That would be really good to know, right? Thankfully, he did tell us. So I want to take a few minutes just to walk through the Gospels together, up to the triumphal entry, up to Palm Sunday, to, to hear from Jesus' own mouth. What does it mean to follow Him, to really follow Him? Because, you know, we can come up with ideas, we can come up with tests, we can come up with our own thoughts about, you know, I'm following Jesus because I fill in the blank, <laughs> because I don't fill in the blank. But let's hear from Jesus, from His own words what it means to follow him up to the triumphal entry because Lord willing, as we get together Good Friday evening for that service, we'll continue to find out more about what it looks like to follow Jesus as he goes to the cross, as he goes to the grave. And then Lord willing, next Sunday when we get together and we can follow him in his resurrection. That's where we're heading over the next few services, the next week together from Jesus' own words, what does it mean to follow him? Because the consistent call that Jesus gave to people was, follow me. Follow me. He called his disciples that way, and, and many people followed him, and they, they gathered around 
Large crowds followed him throughout his, his ministry. His consistent call was, follow me. And the consistent response was to follow him, at least for a time. So what does it look like to follow him? These are uh, some passages that, that we are going to look through, that we're going to walk through the Gospels together. They're not in any order except starting earlier in Matthew, going through Matthew, and then Mark and Luke and John. And we could go through so many more verses. We, really, uh, these are all his words. <laughs> this is all uh, part of how we are to follow him. But let's look at the clear, some of the clearest examples of what Jesus says. Turn back in Matthew, a few chapters, back to chapter 9 of Matthew. And we'll hear from Jesus to follow him, what it looks like. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's what he says. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As Jesus called Matthew to follow him, the Pharisees were offended. Because look at all the sinners that he's eating with. To to eat with people in this culture was close fellowship. That That was really intimate time together, to eat together. And then that sinner invited a whole bunch of other sinners and thieving, trading, uh, trader, tax collectors. It was too much. They complained about him, not to him. They went to his disciples, those who followed him. But his correction to their wrong thinking was they were were thinking that they were righteous. They thought, look, if he's he's this king, if he's a prophet, if he's really from God and he's going to call people, he's going to call us the righteous ones. (laughs) He's really going to come talk to me and have me join him because I am so righteous. Jesus says those who know that they're sick are the ones who go to the doctor. You know, they didn't have annual checkups at the time. They didn't have uh, health insurance. So if you're well, you don't go to the doctor. If you think you're fine, you don't go to the doctor. It's when you know that you're sick that you go see the doctor. So go and learn what this means from the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy is another word, that steadfast love. That's what, that's what Hosea 6 was, was saying. I, God, through him, I desire steadfast love, not some kind of empty outward motions of religion. The second part of the verse from Hosea 6 is that God desires you to know him rather than just bring some more burnt offerings. But they didn't know anything about the Lord. They didn't know anything about the heart. They just had these outward motions, these traditions, and and they thought they were healthy. We don't need a doctor. Jesus is the doctor who came to heal us from our sins. But if you think you're healthy on your own, he did not come to call you. If you think that you're, you're righteous, if you think that you have no sin, Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm here for sinners. I came to call sinners. So number one in our notes, those who truly follow Jesus must recognize that they have no righteousness of their own. If we're really going to follow Jesus, we've got to see and recognize that I don't have anything good in me that makes me worthy 
I, I want to be called by him. I, I need to follow him. And that can only happen if I recognize that I need him. Like a sick person needs a doctor. You must know that you are a sinner because Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. Let's skip ahead a few chapters in Matthew to chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 16. This is a familiar passage to us. It's a familiar story, but it's not just a story. This happened where verse 16 of Matthew 19, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. All the time it's God. Amen? If you would enter, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Rather than follow Jesus, rather than deciding to, to become one of those who follow him, the man held on to his riches. And he came to Jesus because he knew his righteousness wasn't there. Even though he was saying, look, I, all these things I've done, I've kept every single commandment, Jesus. <laughs> I've done all of that. But I'm still, what do I still lack? He knew that his righteousness, even his pride and his arrogance that he was keeping all of the commandments, he still knew that he was falling short. So he said, what do I still need to do? Jesus said, get rid of the thing that you're holding on to the strongest, your riches. Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <gasps> when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? In their minds, like the people who are rich are blessed by God above everybody else. If they're not getting in, who's getting in? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There are specific rewards for those 11 faithful followers, disciples of Jesus. But then Jesus opens it to everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, all of the people who are closest, all of the things who are, that are closest to us will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So there are rewards. There are rewards in heaven for those who follow even sacrificially. So number two in our notes, those who truly follow Jesus must be willing to part with money. Know God's power to do the impossible. We must know God's power to do the impossible. Save me. Save you. And those who truly follow Jesus must look forward to the rewards God will give. You know, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money's not evil, but the love of it is and that's why it's so hard to sacrifice it, to, to be willing to part with it. 
But there's positive, there's good, there's encouragement here, as well as the demand. If you're going to follow me, you must be willing to part with it. You've got to know God's power to do the impossible. You've got to look forward to the rewards. Let's look at the next one. Let's move over to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8. And verse 34, again, just kind of walking through the, the, the Gospels, just, just hearing from Jesus' own mouth. What does it mean to follow him? In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, that if anyone wants to follow Jesus, if you would follow Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus teaches here what it means to follow him. You cannot follow Jesus without denying yourself and carrying a cross. Now, we studied this before when we, when we worked through the Gospel of Mark, denying yourself Means, means that. It means denying yourself. You, you give up any claim for yourself. That includes any position for yourself. You know, I'm the righteous one. I'm the, 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 the good one. I'm the strong one. I'm the sufficient one. I'm the righteous one. You cannot please God through your works, through, through anything that you're able to do, anything that you don't do. You're not better or greater than other people. You can't tell me that. The world tells me I'm a great and I'm a special person. And every person in here is special because you're made in the image of God. He loves you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows if you don't even have any hairs on your head, he knows how many hairs are on your chin. <laughs> but deny your righteousness. Turn away from the things that you do, your sin. Denying what your flesh wants. You deny yourself any rights or privileges that you could enjoy for the sake of others. You deny yourself in total. You say, I'm not enough. I need Jesus. Then you take up your cross, and it doesn't mean dealing with some difficulties in life. You know, we talked about it before. They ran out of the hazelnut syrup at Starbucks. I've got a cross to bear <laughs> in life. Take up your cross refers to carrying the cross beam that would lead to one of the most painful deaths mankind's ever invented. When he said take up your cross, he didn't mean just come up with some, some, some things that you can do to kind of follow along that make it a little difficult. No, he said it's death. It's excruciating pain. That's the meaning of that word excruciating. It's cross kind of pain. It's shame. It's humiliation. It's suffering. Deny yourself and take up the cross. Take up your cross and then you can follow Jesus. It's a big demand. But Jesus says here, there's no other way for you to be saved. There's no other way for your soul to be preserved than to follow him. And to follow him requires that you deny yourself, you take up your cross. So number three, those who truly follow Jesus must deny themselves and take up their cross. And that's what it says, so it's not groundbreaking, but hopefully, Lord willing, just the, the few seconds that we, that we took to think about what that means makes it more real to us. In other words, life becomes all about Jesus, not me. But again, there's encouragement here as well because when it is all about Jesus, 
then we have life forever with Him. (laughs) And we have encouragement here on earth because even though our flesh will struggle and, and it will be difficult, it will be costly for us to follow Him in this way, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's not a cruel taskmaster. He is good. Let's move on to Luke. Luke chapter 9. In Luke's gospel, he also records Jesus' own words telling us what it means to follow, what it really looks like to follow Jesus. In verse 57 of Luke 9, as they were going along the road, Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So there are three different people here. The first and the third are volunteers. I will follow you. The middle one, Jesus says, follow me. But all three have something that prevents them from following him. For the first man, it's the sacrifice that it will cost. It's the loss of rest, of relaxation, of leisure, He doesn't want to give that up. Foxes are always moving. They're roaming for food, but they have holes to rest in when they need it. They can go find a place to rest in a hole. Birds are constantly flying. They're constantly looking for food, building nests. They're doing all of these things, constantly moving. But when they need rest, they have a nest. Jesus doesn't even have a place to lay his head. This is the cost of this ministry that he's come to, to profess and to proclaim and to preach the gospel. There's nowhere even to rest. Just before these verses in Luke, the people of Samaria told him, you can't stay here. You got to keep on moving. You can't rest here. Why? Because he was going to the cross. So will you follow? Will you follow, brother or sister, even if you don't get rest, even if it costs you in a sacrifice? For the second man, it's the immediacy of the call. Jesus calls him right now. He says, follow me. He's got reasons for not yet. You know, let me go bury my father. And you understand that his father isn't dead yet. <laughs> he's waiting. for. If he was dead, he'd already be burying him. But he's not dead yet. He says, let me, let me wait around for him. Can you just wait till it's a little bit more convenient, Jesus? Just wait until it's, you know, the right, till I feel it's the right time. Wait until I feel like it's good. No, Jesus says the right time is now. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God now, right now. And always. I remember approaching my pastor at the time and saying, you know, I, I, I feel the call of God to be in ministry, so my plan is I'm going to finish out my time in the Air Force. I'll, I'll, I'll get my 20 years in the Air Force, and then I'll get that, that awesome retirement. <laughs> and after that, I'll start getting ready for ministry. And he said, well, if God's calling you to ministry, he's not calling you to ministry 20 years from now. <laughs> he's calling you now. God calls us now. Will you follow because the call is immediate? It's now. The third man wasn't ready for the intensity of the call. This call of Jesus is not just sacrificial and it's not just immediate, it's it's intense. He says, I gotta go back and say goodbye to my family. The emphasis is on, (laughs) I'll go back. 
I'm, I'm going to go back, and, and then I'll return. And, and maybe later on, I'll go back again and then come back. And, you know, I, you know th- there's important things. I want to say hi and goodbye and, and, you know, go back and forth. No, this call is all-consuming. This isn't just do it for a little while and then go back and then come back and do it for a little bit and, and then be done. This call to follow Jesus doesn't allow for double-mindedness. It's exclusive. It's all-consuming. It claims all of your attention, all of your love, all of your resources in your life. It doesn't mean you stop loving others, of course, but it's a demand for your attention. All of it and all of your effort. If you begin the work but then look back, like Lot's wife, in a divided interest, Jesus says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. These are big Hard words for us to hear. The, the synonym for following Jesus is, is to be in the kingdom of God. So you, you're not following him and you're not in the kingdom of God when you're not responding to this call to follow him. Will you follow his intense call? No turning back. No turning back, as the song says. So number four, those who truly follow Jesus must answer the call despite the sacrifice, the immediacy, and the intensity. Don't make a hasty decision. Don't, don't just think, oh, I'll, follow, I'll add him to my life and things will get easier. Things will get better. He never promises that. Jesus was not dishonest about the demands involved in following him. We might try to make it easier. We might want to make it seem easier when we talk to people. Just come to Jesus. Just add him to your life. He'll make it better. He'll make it easier. He'll, you know, all the promises we can think of. Jesus never did that. He was honest. There is a total commitment called here to follow Jesus. There's more instruction in chapter 14 of Luke. Skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 14. And Jesus continues to teach what it means to follow him. And there are crowds at this point following him. In Luke 14, you might think Jesus would turn around and say, look, I'm so glad you guys are here. Thanks for following me. It's so wonderful Um, What can I do for you? How can I make you comfortable? (laughs) We we might think Jesus would do that, but he turns to them. Luke 14, verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me, and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, that's hard Those words are hard. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king and ward, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Three times, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple if... This, if, this, if, this. And these are strong, definitive statements. 
It's so difficult, but Jesus is defining the truth of what it looks like to follow him. Now, the word hate here, you have to hate your father and mother, your sisters, all your closest. This isn't, this isn't that kind of angry, like, I can't wait to, to hurt you or harm you or something. That, that's not the hate that's, that's talked about here, but it's a choosing against as opposed to choosing for. When you love, you choose for. When you hate, you choose against. And so if there ever is a time where you've got to make a decision, do I, choose, do I remain faithful to Jesus or do I leave him and remain faithful to my brother, my sister, my wife, my parents? It's Jesus. You choose for Jesus. If that ever happens as a decision you have to make, even the very closest relationships in your life, a true disciple chooses Jesus now, first, always, continually. Jesus then reminds us of the call to take up our cross. We don't look out for ourselves, trying to preserve ourselves, doing what pleases us. True disciples are willing to endure that suffering, that pain, even death, if that's what Jesus calls us to do. But just in case there's anything left out, he ends with that third one, that third condition there. Just be willing to renounce all that you have, everything. The word renounce there means to just say goodbye to it. Be willing to part with anything and everything for Jesus. Even your life. If you aren't willing to say goodbye to everything, you cannot be his disciple. And those two illustrations are helpful to, to, to help us understand what he's telling us right up front. It was, it's going to cost you. So sit down. Before you say, Jesus, I will follow you, before you tell other people, I follow Jesus, you've got to sit down and you've got to recognize his demands for following him and you've got to decide, is this worth it? What he's calling me to is exclusive and it's intense and it's so much more and so much bigger than, than we've thought about so often. Is it worth it? We've already seen the rewards that he gives and the eternal life that he gives is it worth it? Number five in our notes, those who truly follow Jesus must count the cost before following him. We don't want there to be any question afterward. This conscious decision that you have to make before you follow him every day because things are going to happen that you don't want to happen. Things are going to go the wrong way. People are going to do things to you and say things to you that you... You can't let that make you fall away from following Jesus. Jesus says anything and everything. Say goodbye to it because we're saying hello to life. We're saying hello to Jesus. We're saying yes and love to Jesus. Well, Jesus has spoken to the crowds, the rich young ruler, the Pharisees, and even his disciples. Look to John chapter 8. And we've only got a couple of more and we can go through these briefly enough because they're so clear. John 8. This is what Jesus says to those who believed him. You say, oh, I already believe in Jesus. You know, I don't need any of this stuff. I, I already follow him. I already believe him. But this is what Jesus says. He turns to those who believed him. Verse 30 said there were many. Verse 31 of John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And he goes on to tell them that their father is the devil. They either have the father God through Jesus or they have the father devil. That, that was it. So you're not truly my disciple, Jesus says, if you do not abide in my word. What does that mean? It doesn't mean just listen to it. It doesn't mean just hear it. It doesn't mean just read it and then close it and put it away. It means immerse yourself in it. Abide means to live in it, to stay in it, to dwell in his word. Look at the reward, the benefit. You will be set free. Free from what? Free from sin. The sin that keeps you from Jesus, the sin that, that brings consequences of separation and, and division and, and hate and, and pain and sickness and death, all of that that sin comes with, you'll be free from that and free indeed, <laughs> free like you would never be free. That's the reward, abiding in. So number six, those who truly follow Jesus must abide in his word. John chapter 13 is the next one. Jesus says, I'm leaving. You can't come. You can't follow me yet. But a new command I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The command to love was not new, but the command to love like Jesus was brand new because Jesus was loving them and he loved them to the end. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Will you love, brother, sister, faithfully to the death, to the end, completely? Even if somebody does something to hurt you, even if somebody says something that's not right against you. I did that this week to a brother. I said something that was was hurtful, harmful, and not true, but the brother forgave. Will you love like that? Will you love even when one of these people betrays you? When, when one denies you in front of everyone, like, as Peter would do to Jesus. He loved them to the end. Number seven, those who truly follow Jesus must love as he loved. The standard is perfect love. Do you meet that standard? You know, we, if we claim to follow Jesus, do I love as Jesus loved? No, I can't. I can't say that. But he works out his love in me and in you more and more every day. That's his will and his plan. The last one, John chapter 14, verse 15. In John 14, Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and, I, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. True disciples of Jesus choose him. They love him exclusively, wholly, faithfully, perfectly. 
No, we can't love perfectly. <laughs> we can't, we're not, we fall so far short of true love like Jesus loved. But we abide in his word and we obey his word, keep his commandments, that's what he says. You can't do that on your own power. You can't do it perfectly. And we never love God as he's de- deserving of, like he's capable, like we're capable of in Jesus. You know, he changes us so that we're able to love, so that we don't have to sin. But we still do, we still mess it up. We don't love others as we should, but we believe. So then when we do fall, listen, brother, sister, when we do fall, we obey his commandment to repent, to confess it, to repent, and he cleans us again. Number eight, those who truly follow Jesus must keep his commandments. Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you follow him like these eight, in these eight ways that Jesus said, you've got to follow me this way? Or do you follow like the crowd? If this is, if this is how you've understood following Jesus and, and this is what you're striving for, this is what you're doing because of your love for him, praise God for that and encourage one another. If this is new for you, if you're saying, I don't know if I've ever thought of any of this, I don't know if, I'm fo- if I've been following Jesus, I don't know if I've really followed him, let's talk. I'll wait for you up here after the service because I know we've gotten long. To follow Jesus is eternal life. It's life now and it's life forever. He is peace. He's love. He's truth. He is all and in all and through all and everything is for him. (laughs) He's the glorious king. Father God, thank you for that truth. God, thank you that Jesus is king. He is the conquering king. Lord, he is the one who is victorious, who has triumphed over my sin. Lord, he is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the first and the last. Father, thank you that there were people alive to celebrate his coming into Jerusalem as he deserved. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for following like that crowd did. That sometimes we're excited and sometimes we do things and sometimes we fall away and we we desert our Lord. We leave him. God, we pray for your forgiveness. Father, we pray that because of Jesus. Because in Jesus, you forgive. He was perfect. He is perfect. God, he gave himself for us. Lord God, we pray that you would work in us to reveal that truth to us in our hearts and our minds. God, that that would be the truth that we live by, that we abide in that truth, the truth of your word. God, help us to speak that truth, that gospel, that good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. God, that brings you glory. Lord, that brings other people into the kingdom. Father, make us faithful to do that, to sing that, to pray that, Lord, to live what you have said and all that Jesus has said. And we ask all of this in his perfect, precious, holy, righteous name. Amen.